welcome back to Subspace Radio. We are here for episode 49 of our show and episode 10 of Lower Decks Season 4, Rob. We missed it by that much. Wouldn't it have been amazing oh. if we were celebrating our 50th on a season finale? If only we split our review of the animated series into two oh. episodes. <laughs> Gone into the detail that series so sorely needs. Yes, indeed. I have been very looking forward to hearing what you made of Old Friends, New Planets, Rob, because, boy, a better target audience for this episode they could not have found than Rob Lloyd. They have focused in on uh, one of my favorite, well, my favorite movie of uh, yeah. the Star Trek franchise. Did they lean into it or what? This is what I'm changed? wondering, Rob. Was it too pandery or was it just right? Oh, for me, it was just right. And I'm very thankful. I think I did it last last time we recorded. Very thankful for you, for me opening up. Um, you know, sure, Next Generation is probably one of the most influential parts of this franchise. I get mm -hmm. that. It's been on. Uh, but I've been adjacent to it and you have helped me open up to all the varieties and the great stories within there. So this would not have hit as hard for me, uh, if it wasn't for this podcast and working with you, I probably wouldn't be watching lower decks if it wasn't for you. So, um, I, I really got into it. That opening scene was just magic Ooh. and, um, I, I adored the lean in as soon as they started doing the James Horner tribute music, I'm there going, yep. It's just like Wrath of Khan. They've brought back a, a character who appeared in one episode and they're doing the showdown. Yeah, I had I had not clocked that parallel. That is true. Uh, the other callback we got for the next-gen fans like me was the, uh, the return to Starfleet Academy and visiting Nova Squadron. Um, yeah, Nick Locarno in his prime, a little bit of Wesley Crusher. I, I had to chuckle because there was... There was Nova Squadron. It was, it was very clear that this was Nick Locarno. I recognized Cito Jaxa right away. There was <laughs> the guy who's dead by the time uh, of the Next Gen episode. So Josh? We, we hadn't met Josh in person before, so that was cool. And then there was this very generic-looking white dude. And I was like, <laughs> is that Wesley Crusher? I bet it's Wesley that Crusher. Is, that and is a perfect definition of Will Wheaton. <laughs> <laughs> on closer inspection, on second viewing, I was like, how did they choose to, like, caricature Will Wheaton in animation? And as far as I can tell, he is just a generic white dude with a swooshy, like, the parted brown hair style, which is not that characteristic. The only kind of characteristic visual tag that exists in this drawing that as far as i can tell is he seems to have eyeliner on like his his top <laughs> eyelashes are extra thick and i had never noticed that will wheaton was gifted with the bushy top eyelashes but that is now officially how you recognize will wheaton and it must have been a really tough time uh studying at starfleet for wesley crusher at that time because for that particular moment in time he sounded like he had aged like 30 years <laughs> Oh, he did not sound like a young upstart, upstart teenager. He sounded like a 40-year-old, mid-40s man. Wow. Yeah, I, I cannot hear the age in most people's voices, so it worked for me. But uh, Oh, good. 
Yeah, but it was great. Uh, seeing Cedo Jaxa was great. Hearing Cedo Jaxa was great. The actor, Shannon Phil, who played Cedo Jaxa, basically retired from acting after 1995. Um, so she appeared in Star Trek for the last time in Lower Decks uh, in 1994. She retired from acting a year later, and they brought her back for this appearance. That is incredible. You know, there's a lot of talk at the moment about, you know, within our uh, spectrum and also within pop culture in general, about our links to nostalgia with what we produce nowadays and whether it's just member berries or whether it's actually consistent. But hearing stories like this, where they hunt down the original actor, they may have moved on from the profession, but, you know, they've done their schmoozing. They've done the things that some good nerds can do very well, go we can't do this without you. And so they can be celebrated yet again for their work um, decades ago. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful story. Yeah, it's great. And you, you just got to think, not only are these production companies willing to dip into their pockets and maybe pay what it takes, but the actors are clearly proud enough of the work that they're willing to come back and keep their character alive in this continuity. Yeah, and the, just a way of, because years ago it would be unheard of people mm. going, I'm not coming back for this weird thing, but there's been such a, a celebration and embracing of legacy and heritage. Uh, what these shows are, these forms of television and film uh, franchises are our new myths and legends. I don't know if it's the insecurity of a pop culture fan talking, but you always wonder, you know, do the actors on this show love this thing that I love as much as I do? Probably not, but do they love <laughs> it at all? And having Cedo Jaxa herself come back out of retirement to reprise the role, that is a sign to me, like it's validating. It tells me that the, the, the actors, the creatives, the craftspeople that made this thing value it just like I do. Yeah, it's really weird. Like there was always a case of the actors involved in the show. Uh, it's the cliche of the actors just did it for a job and they don't know their own law. I mean, it was parodied beautifully, but tributed beautifully in Galaxy Quest, one of the greatest Star Trek movies ever made, obviously. But there is this case in reality, like you, Jonathan Frakes and stuff like that. They know the law. They know the history of it. They yeah. go to cons, so they need to be up to it. You know, Patrick Stewart famously never had any contact with it for ages, but then after they wore him down. And so now he's become not just au fait with talking about his theater and stage career. He can have in-depth conversations with fans about Star Trek lore and where Picard was and in his character journey and say halfway through season two. Speaking of Patrick Stewart, I actually got the chance to read his autobiography since we last recorded, and there is a very nice section uh, talking about David Warner and his time playing that Cardassian torturer in Star Trek The Next Generation, and he talks about the fact that he was worried that someone as big a name as David Warner would come in and it would be just a job for him, but he came in, he knew his lines cold, and he loved the part. He he loved that it would be one-on-one, -on one him and Captain Picard. And he appreciated the the weight and the significance of that. And so even though he was a day player, he valued Star Trek just as much as you might hope. I love the little part as well in the biography about when they were filming Nemesis. And he talked about the fact that this young actor was brought in 
He <laughs> shaved his head and put on a prosthetic to look more like me. And he kept very much to himself. Never left his trailer. Never. He wasn't rude. He was just very much in his zone and stuff yeah. like that. And didn't really socialize that much, but it never came across as rude, just isolated himself uh -huh. from it. And, and when he left, Patrick Stewart said the famous line, well, we'll never see that actor ever again. <laughs> and that was Tom Hardy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah good book. Uh, I take it you enjoyed it? Yes. Yeah. It, 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 I, I mean, I love the the old school uh, theater theater oh. types back in the old days of the the Royal Shakespeare Company and all that type of stuff, just sharing oh, just their, their... Hearing about his childhood and just the fact that... Um, Basically, a government entity came along and plucked this kid out of nowhere, out of country England, and said, you seem to have the spark for acting. Come to a Shakespeare summer camp. Come to an acting intensive week where we'll have to fu fudge the numbers because you're not quite old enough officially. But don't worry, we'll forge the forms for you so that you can take part in this thing that will become your entire career, that will make you world famous. Just the, the, the sliding doors of that, of what might have not been if... You know, the right government department had not gotten the arts budget they needed that year to make Patrick Stewart happen. And even like, even the obstacles of him branching into America, like he he had an American agent, even though he'd never done any work in America and he'd never heard from them. And then when he gets the auditions, Roddenberry didn't want him because in Roddenberry's mind, baldness had been cured in yeah, the future. That's right. Um and so Stuart had to do an audition without the wig, and then he brought out his own uh, rug, as he said. And you, you can see the photos online of him in the wig that mm. he had himself. He brought it. He had his own. Yeah, <laughs> he's one. What he prepared earlier. I um, love his, just to uh, get... his, uh, his like, he said, that was my secret weapon for a while is I would bring in the, I would come in in the wig and then at an opportune moment, I'd whip it off and say, you get two actors for the price of one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so charming. So uh, it's yeah. amazing that that, that worked uh, so often. Oh, so good. Um, yes, recommended reading for any Star Trek fan. The audiobook is especially good. Patrick Stewart reads the whole thing himself, and it is, uh, it is wonderful to spend all that time with that man. Yes, definitely. So, Lower Deck season for that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what were we here to talk about again, Rob? It was great to have uh, all these old actors from the original series come back. I particularly was very happy to have, have Robert Duncan McDaniel come back. Mm -hmm. And his his Lacana was great. He did a great job. He was having a great time, you could tell. And parallels beautifully with Paris as well, because Paris w was a very similar character to Lacano, yeah. but he faced up to his responsibilities and took responsibility for his actions, whereas Lucano never did and always yeah. blamed other people. Mm -hmm. And to see that that dark side. Great gags in there, like it had to be addressed. It had to be addressed. But you know, Boindler and Rutherford they're going, no, oh, no, oh, it looks like Tom Paris. He's got the exact same face. <laughs> <laughs> and the return of the best gag I've ever seen in a show of sci-fi bent. Um, you, they brought back the Mark Twain, uh, yes. uh, uh, protocol. I was delighted. And also I felt like I shouldn't have been surprised the number of like things from the season so far they pulled back. So going back mm. to Orion, negotiating with Tendi too, um, and all of that Barter stuff. Barter by combat. <laughs> Barter by combat. Oh, Dr. Mib Miglimo fluffing his down <laughs> was the best thing ever. 
<laughs> she sneezes and he goes, bless you, dear. Just <laughs> reflexively. Oh, so good. So good. Uh, and we see the, the captain's yacht. The captain's lot yacht looked a lot to me like the captain's yacht for the Enterprise E. And I, sure enough, I went back and earlier in that scene, if you look at the Cerritos, the, the spot where the captain's yacht goes is actually empty. Like they, they drew the, the empty slot. So it was there. They played fair. It was there to be seen missing before it popped up. I particularly loved uh, Boinler getting uh, in the captain's chair for the first time and handling it quite well. Yeah, I almost, I almost didn't buy it. That's how well he handled it. Like it was, yeah, it was conspicuous how well he handled it. And I don't know if we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but I feel like that is the promise of season five. Here is that this is the moment where all of our lower decks crew earned their second pip, and that season five is going to be stories of people who used to be lower deckers and are now yeah. comfortable in their skin. They are capable. Uh, they get stuff done and they can captain a ship when they need to. It was a wonderful sight to finally, after the last episode where we had Mariner talk about um, her time at the Academy, but to actually see her in the flashback, to see her like Boinla, you know, all talking at a hundred miles an hour and such gushing awe <laughs> of Aceto and that type of stuff was just, and you know, even Wesley Crusher looking at you a bit, hey, come on, yeah. easy down. <laughs> um, it, that was wonderful to see that journey and to hopefully to, for all that is holy, put to bed this, um, this, the, this cycle of, yeah. you know, not willing to take on. Cynical. Yeah. Marin. Yeah. Um, I, the fact that Mariner to me as a fan was welcome in that scene is also a testament to what this show has achieved. Like the idea that we would go back to that hallowed ground of not just uh, the grounds of Starfleet Academy where Boothby can be spotted trimming a tree over there, but that's right. the characters from the first duty, including Wesley Crusher, like two of those characters have, have gone on to die in canon. So we bring them back to life here. And the fact that we were happy to see Mariner walk into frame and be a part of that, and it it didn't feel like, you know, treading over uh, sacred ground with a uh, cynical character beat. It felt like, yes, Mariner, you are just as much a part of the canon here. And the idea that we would link these two things together is delightful. Uh, that is something that partway through season one of Lower Decks, I might not have believed we'd get that far. Yeah, I mean, especially when you'd have Mariner walk into a space and everyone, it was my criticism with the first season or so, with just nothing stuck to her. You yeah. know, she was like Teflon, but to see how far she's come and yeah. to, to, it was just a delight to see her being referred to as, oh, here comes your shadow. You're going, Mariner would never be referred to in that way, shape or form, or you wouldn't even guess that from yeah. season one, to see her like that and to see her embrace that side of her, that beautiful yeah. line when she says to Nick, you know, she sacrificed, you know, when they're talking about Cito saying she sacrificed herself for what she believed in, don't you dare take that away from her. Mm -hmm. And you go, oh, that is some powerful stuff. Great stuff from a silly show that started with, you know, uh, uh, a Klingon Batleth being, you know, almost cutting off uh, Boydler's <laughs> leg in the first five minutes. Yeah. 
So yes, we do meet Nick Locarno and he chews up the scenery while sitting in his jet-powered floating captain's chair. Um, it is it is great. The three binars on the bridge immediately raised an eyebrow for me and the fact that the MacGuffin of the episode became this trinar shield that was surrounding <laughs> the the star system that they were hiding in. I know it's it's a stupid detail to get hung up on, but to me the whole point of the binars is that they are a species that has evolved to work in pairs. The idea that that Nick Locarno would somehow figure out how to get them working as a trio and that would create an amazingly powerful force field. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. <laughs> I don't think they took the time to even try and make us buy it. The closest thing they did was acknowledge the strangeness when Mariner for a moment goes, hang on, three binars. Can you even have three binars? Oh, well. And and it's nothing more is said. So that is the closest thing this episode had to something that... Uh, it didn't bring me along and I didn't buy it. And the fact that that kind of nitpicky thing is the worst I can say about this episode, I think sings its praises. Well, look, they're following the tradition of what they do in all season finales where I'm there going, hang on, have they changed something irrevocably uh -huh. with canon that cannot be changed ever again? What will have ramifications across the entire franchise? Yeah. Oh, no, they've changed it. Oh, yeah. It's all gone now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yes, Mariner commandeers her little uh, her little ship, which was a class that I wasn't familiar with. In fact, it was a newly made class, but it is a smaller version of an existing class. So we had the Steamrunner class, which is which Steam has runner. been in in Wolf three five nine, and like it's such a minor detail that it had never caught my eye before. And then there's the there's the new class, which is a Saber Runner class, which is a small version of the same thing. At first, I thought it kind of looked like Beverly Crusher's ship in uh, season four, at the start of season four of Picard. It had that same sort of like bridge nestled on the top of a of a structure that had the engine nacelles attached to it. Um, but it it was not the same thing. It was just a mini version of this this ship we had barely seen before. So um, yeah, nice uh, continued ship class world building, uh, which you know I appreciate, Rob. Bring them all back. Bring them all back. It is a world that fills out this universe so much more. Um, I love the uh, return of the Genesis device, obviously, because we had a lot of Star Trek II references there. As soon as she plonked that Genesis device on the bridge, I thought, oh, this is feeling very Star Trek II. <laughs> even, yeah, even before they go into a nebula. Mm. Oh, beautiful stuff. And of course, there's a paywall because it's a Ferengi Genesis device. Okay, well, not to activate it, but to deactivate it. Yes, of uh, course. The Fringies know when to ask for money, and you're not gonna you're not gonna kick up a fuss. Mm -hmm. That's got to be a rule of acquisition there somewhere. <laughs> yes, the hide and seek game in the Ion Storm. We are told, although it looks suspiciously like the Mutara Nebula from Star Trek Two, <laughs> with the ships passing over each other and the exact oh. same music cues. And then when the, eventually the Genesis device is set off and the exact same beat for beat, like sucking in of the nebula and then the, the ring clouds as the, the ship escapes with the very same whoosh and the tra trailing the warp trails behind it. It's, it was so good. I, I had to go back and watch the end of Star Trek II afterwards just to bathe oh. in how precisely they did the homage here. 
Yeah, it's beautiful. And we had, um, there's a great shot that near the end when you just had all five, because it's been the four, but now with Talin there, yeah. just that unity is great. But now we've lost, we've lost Tendi. Yeah. The show succeeded in what it, it, it promised we were going to lose Tendi. It gave us just enough action to make us forget we were going to lose Tendi. And then the ship appears and they say, Tendi, it's time to go. And uh, yeah, my, my stomach fell out. Uh, the bottom there. Um, I felt it. Okie dokie. Yeah. Oh, that that final shot of her. I'm going, this is an animated show. Okay. That is not disparaging. When she turns to anim- the camera and then walks out and her, of shot and the. And the, her eyes change. Yeah. Her eyes change yeah. from being the big bulb and you just see the, the lines go down and her I got whole this. face changes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Her character evolved in that moment. Yes. And that's going to be really exciting to see because. Yeah, Tendi is beautiful and incredible and amazing character. And there is just, if there's the harshest of harsh hint of criticism, that she's a bit one note. But um, even when she's embraced the fact she's gone back to Orion, she goes, yeah, I know all this stuff, but it's not me. But to see the fact that, oh, she can go there. Yeah. And she's going to have to go there now. She's going to have to. And that's not a disparaging to animation. I adore animation and you can capture so much in that art form. But what we were sold when... Uh, lower deck started oh we're the silly animated show yeah Yeah. they use that as you know the disguise that's the sheep's clothing and inside is a powerful narrative wool that has grabbed us by its throat and take it i've lost track of this metaphor (laughs) but yeah i was still nodding rob i was still nodding (laughs) i feel like um um, with with boimler and mariner we saw them like overcome their issues and become the next stage of each of their own evolution in this season, if not this episode. Um, yeah. Rutherford and Tendi are still kind of yet to pay off, I feel like. So in the yes. same way that we kept seeing Mariner self-destruct and go back, make the same mistakes again and again until finally it feels like she has earned her redemption. I feel like you look at Tendi and it's been the same thing. She's gone, you know, dip a toe into her past, but then back away and then go yeah. there again and then back away. And now she's not going to be able to escape it. No, and, she has to fully embrace her Orion heritage. Yeah. And what I expect we're going to get a version of that from Rutherford as well. Well, yes, we could only hope. <laughs> <laughs> Whether it's him being honest about his feelings for Tendi or something else even more interesting that I can't even guess. Um, I can't wait to see. Start season five immediately, I say. Exactly. It was a great way to finish off. It's been a solid season. Yeah. And it was what that's one of the best season finales we've had. I think that that's up there is one of my favorites. It was final also when it was hilarious. It was funny. It was powerful. It was a, enough nods to the past as a tribute. It was, yeah, really you know, those nods subtle or otherwise to, uh, to movies or TV shows uh, that inspired it. Great stuff. So I seized upon this Trinar shield, much as I uh, have criticized it. It also kind of stood out to me as a particularly Star Trek-y thing that we haven't talked about. These walls in space, these these barriers that cannot be penetrated unless you have a, a very large, slightly phallic-looking ship to throw at it. I could think of a couple, and uh, I thought, let's talk about barriers in space for this, this our final subspace radio of the season. 
Yes. It look for me always space barriers are always for me, I I'm not the biggest fan of them because it immediately turns the whole thing into more of a 2D. Yes. Event, I completely agree a, with you. Yeah. It is how absurd they are or how unbelievable they are is kind of part of the charm for me that when Star Trek <laughs> first did it, it was the 60s and you can forgive a lot. But as it has continued on, as in so many things in Star Trek, we kind of have to keep accepting it because it's been there for so long. That's the thing. You know, the whole point is space, the final frontier. <laughs> space is massive, huge. As T Douglas Adams says, it's very, very big. Yes. Think of the biggest thing and it's even bigger. Yes. And then something as limiting as a barrier <laughs> just takes away everything that a, yeah, a space so we are, thing is we meant to be. We have the same mind, Rob. The why don't you just fly around it factor is palpable here. <laughs> like... Luckily, the TV has edges because if you looked past it, surely that thing would end surely. at some point. Just walk around it. It's just the, the edge of it's right over there. Okay. So I, I've got a, an original series uh, barrier we could talk about. I do too. And I took this inspiration from you. So I'll uh, tip my hat to you. Okay. Well, why don't you lead us off? Yes. Okay. Well, it's one I thought I hadn't seen before, but then when I started watching it, I go, this looks familiar and uh, it's like a second pilot, but then they put it into the regular canon. Mm -hmm. So it it's it's an odd beast because they're still wearing the same uniforms of the cage, but it's meant <laughs> to be later on when everything's... We're, we're going to look at where no man has gone before. Yes. So yeah, production order, it's the second pilot, but uh, it aired as like the fourth episode. Yes. In this, we have the, the great Gary Lockwood from 2001 A Space Odyssey. And we also have the wonderful Sally Kellerman, nominated for an Oscar later on for MASH, the original Hot Lids Hulahan. Both of them show up and, uh, uh, spoilers ahead, they're gone by the end of the episode. Yes, they become gods and must be destroyed. Yes, because there is no religion in the future, according to Gene Roddenberry. <laughs> there is ESP, though. There's a lot of yes. ESP talk in this episode. What is your yes, what is your esper rating and uh, extrasensory perception is a well documented fact. You know all those people who can spontaneously create fires, says Spock. Yeah, it's it's a strange <laughs> one. They they had not quite figured out just how much science and just how much fiction there would be in this thing called Star Trek at this point. And it it, it looks like is it just me or does Leonard Nimoy have scurvy during this? <laughs> he needs to eat more oranges. His makeup job was still evolving, yes. It was very yellow. Um, <laughs> but I had seen that beginning before. I remember watching it when it was like the original series were played on Channel 7 here when I was growing up late at night, 10.30, once a week. And so I said, I'm going to watch the original series because I love the original movies. And so this one came up and I'm going, hang on, but last week they had the red, the What's happening here? What always stands out to me is the the little visors that are on the gooseneck stands coming out of the bridge consoles. Those are what signal the the original pilots for me. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the very large laser gun, which was very <laughs> cumbersome. We are, of course, talking about the galactic barrier, the barrier at the edge of the galaxy. Literally at the place where no man or woman or anyone has gone before and... When they are there, they make contact with something that takes over um, our our dear Gary Lockwood uh, Mitchell, who apparently has this history with Kirk, 
And well, we don't get much more of that. There's no future in that. <laughs> but um, he has most of the screen time. I'm amazed by how much screen time Gary Lockwood gets in this. He's equals that. Yeah. Kurt. Yeah. I thought he is not as strong a guest star as his co uh, guest star Sally Kellerman. She she has a weight of gravitas that you know. I sat up and took notice as soon as she walked on the bridge, even though every single man on that bridge was uh, was <laughs> sexisming her <laughs> like crazy. <laughs> this does not age well. This episode, I will say, he uh, Gary Lockwood calls her a walking freezer unit in in uh, their first meeting, and especially because like only a couple of minutes ago he was like touching the hands of the young. Yeah. Blonde haired thing yeah. who's just standing there. There's no Uhura. Sulu doesn't come in until later. It is very white 60s Star Trek there. And you're there going, Hoo. Yeah, but uh, even yeah. like, I don't know, like Star Trek was not fully formed yet. And it, I like in Gary Lockwood's defense, there was no right way to perform in Star Trek yet at this time. But True. he still stands out that. When he's given orders and he does things, he's, he does them in a casual kind of, yeah, all right, sort of way that doesn't have the same formality as many of the other actors are playing in this episode. And it, uh, it bothers me. I don't know if that was deliberate so that we would be okay with him becoming the antagonist later in the episode, that mm. it's kind of okay that he's a dick early on because he eventually gets his <laughs> comeuppance. But uh, yeah, he he did not fit on that bridge from the beginning for me. Yeah, as it's always been said, it was you know it was sold as wagon train in space. Mm, yeah. Uh, so he and most of the actors at this time, you know, the biggest thing on television and film really was westerns. So a lot of actors would you know had done their time on a western. So it seemed like Gary Lockwood had come straight off the set of one western and didn't really adjust to what this new style. He leaned more into the wagon train as opposed to the space part. Yep. Yep. So yes, this barrier, which in the orig my original viewing of Where No Man Has Gone Before was little more than kind of a pink-purple strip across the screen, in the remastered version that you can watch on Paramount Plus now, is a much more dramatically rendered pink-purple strip. But it still has that thing where it is a horizontal line <laughs> with black above it and black below it. And it begs the question, why don't you just, just fly around it? <laughs> just go, just, just go over it. Just go on top. Two-dimensional thinking, Rob. This indicates two-dimensional thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Ships going us from left of screen to right of screen. Oh, well, there's nothing more we can do. I guess we're staying right here. <laughs> You realize you're not on a horse. You're not actually on a wagon train. What the hell? Um, yeah, it was uh, it, the the barrier that we yeah. were talking about was used more as a plot device. It wasn't, yes. and so like to springboard off to the human human drama. You know, That's right. It wasn't. It wasn't the major problem that needed to be solved. Or it's interesting to me though that that this episode really is the official discovery of the barrier, the galactic barrier in Star Trek, because they arrive here, their mission is to explore beyond the rim of the galaxy. And they arrive and are surprised to find the barrier there. They didn't know it was going to be there. They find a log buoy from the USS Valiant that got swept out there. 200 years ago. So there was no record of that barrier before. And this is 
effectively, Starfleet's first encounter or planned encounter with this barrier, they they run into it going, I wonder what's going to happen. Bad things happen pretty quickly and they turn around and go back. But by then, nine crew members are dead and two of them have been transformed into gods. That's right. And they have to go to a planet and just uh, dig a grave and <laughs> then get Kirk's, Kirk's shirt ripped open. Yeah. Because of course it does. So, yeah, this establishes a lot of lore in this one not even regular episode of Star Trek. Second pilot, we establish a galactic barrier for some reason. Not only is it a barrier, but it has these effects that it can turn people into these esper superheroes, <laughs> supervillains. And yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot a lot is established here. If every episode of Star Trek established this much lore, I feel like the canon would have flown apart at the seams pretty quickly. Yeah, it was it's clear it's a pilot and there's still as you said there's more room to go. There's still more developing to do and finding the shape and voice of it. There's parts of it where you go, "Oh, you're tantalizingly close." The moment where where Kirk wins the chess match and looks at Spock and smiles at him. Yeah, there's a great calm and there's a great understanding of what Kirk needs to do. That's Shatner at his top of his game going, I got this, I know what I'm doing. Um, but there's other moments that are clumsy and doesn't seem like they've gone all out and they didn't realize much like animated season finales, um, what the ramifications they've made to the law and the entire franchise, whether it happens or not. Well, yeah, it's a blank slate. I mean, you got to take advantage, right? Exactly. I mean, in some exactly. ways, that's what Star Trek can't do now to, I'm sure, every writer's frustration is you can't take any big swing without tripping over four aspects of canon that, that you are uh, running afoul of. So, um, yeah, you could, you could tell they were taking big swings while they could here. But yeah, as I was saying, the barrier or the force was there almost, you know, for a little bit and then they moved on. They moved on, it. yeah. It, it was a yeah. catalyst. Many attempts have been made in fandom and uh, fiction to explain the two-dimensionality of this barrier. There are, uh, there are fan theories that it's actually just thicker at the edge and that's why it's visible, but it actually does go over the top. At the risk of jumping ahead to a future pick, Star Trek V establishes a similar great barrier at the center of the galaxy. And fans have kind of like drawn a line between the two and gone, okay, the galactic barrier is at the edge, over the top and bottom, and then it comes into the middle and connects to the great barrier at the center of the galaxy so that effectively the galaxy is a big flat donut encased in barrier, plot mm -hmm. barrier, mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -mm, that delicious plot barrier, so <laughs> sweet and limits the limitlessness of the universe. To their credit, they have been relatively consistent with this barrier. It did come back twice more in the original series. In season two, episode 21, by any other name, the Enterprise is captured by a group of aliens who came from the Andromeda galaxy and crash landed their ship on their way in through the galactic barrier. And so to get home, they hijacked the Enterprise, refit it so that it can traverse the, the barrier safely, and then they go out again. So we see the galactic barrier again, and it is at least um, acknowledged that it is a hard thing to get through, that you need special alien technology upgrades to do it. 
it is also discussed in that episode that it is a barrier of negative energy. And there's this moment where Spock and Scotty plot this plan to eject positive energy from the engines at the moment that they're passing through it, and it will cause this explosion that will self-destruct the Enterprise rather than let it be hijacked by these aliens. And Kirk says, nope. I'm going to negotiate them down. Don't worry. And he negotiates them down by the end of the episode. But yeah, we see it again. Uh Uh, And in season three, we see it one more time in season three, episode seven, Is There in Truth No Beauty? Which is maybe the most disappointing appearance of the galactic barrier. The Enterprise gets hijacked by a madman who is (laughs) let loose. He is is mad, I should say, because he has seen a Medusan. So our friend Zero from Star Trek Prodigy, the original Medusan, makes this man go mad. He goes to engineering, plays with the controls, and makes the ship go really fast. And it goes zoop through the barrier. And it's kind of a bump. And I think what we learn there is that the trick for getting through the galactic barrier is just to fly really fast. Get it over with quickly. All right. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that, yeah, that doesn't seem like there's any logic holes in that whatsoever. No, it is. Uh, um, it is a pretty typical third season episode where there are some weak aspects. And shortly after traversing the barrier, Kirk goes over to Spock and says, "What just happened?" And this is the line I wrote it down. Spock, in complete seriousness, says, "When we exceeded warp speed factor nine point five, we apparently entered a space time continuum." Mm-hmm. That, that explains it all. Cool. Well, if anybody else said that, I'd say it's horse pucky, but because it came from uh, uh, Spock's mouth, Leonard Nimoy has a lot of gravity. I believe what he says. I don't know why you're saying it in such a sarcastic way. Yeah, he almost gets away with it. (laughs) (laughs) So what what, uh, episode are you going to focus on? I'll talk a bit about another original series episode. They were, they were really enjoying these walls in space early on in Star Trek history. (laughs) And this is season three, episode nine, The Tholian Web. We've talked about this one pretty recently on the show because it's one where Kirk goes missing and Spock and McCoy have to butt heads over who's in command and whether Spock has the best interests at the ship at heart. There's a lot going on in this episode. They find a starship that's kind of dissolving in space. Kirk is lost in a transporter accident and they have a funeral for him. The space that is causing the the ship, the Defiant, to dissolve also causes a creeping insanity among the crew. So people are going nuts, especially Chekhov. Chekhov's always the first person to go nuts, Rob. I don't know if you've noticed. Of course, yeah. I have picked it up. And then they meet the Tholians. Uh, in, in the midst of all of this, one of these like diamond-shaped ships show up and the diamond-shaped crystalline uh, alien on board confronts them and says, what are you doing in our space? And uh, Spock is unwilling to leave because Kirk is missing and if they move, they might lose him. And because of that, the Tholians have time to start to build a web around the Enterprise. I feel like... This is a particularly tenuous house of cards for the Tholians' web technology to come in handy. Like, they have, they developed this thing 100 years ago, and they haven't managed to find a practical use for it until today. They finally, finally found a ship in their space that is unwilling to move or run away or make any kind of aggressive move whatsoever, while they, for hours, build this web around them that will uh, trap them inescapably. 
Seems legit to me, Kev. <laughs> You've changed my mind. I don't know why I ever doubted these space barriers as being a great and effective way of telling a story. It is <laughs> canonically a bubble around the ship, but yeah. because of the limitations of what they could create in the effects of the 60s, which are largely faithfully reproduced in the remaster version, although there is one or two shots where we get to see the curvature of the thing. Largely, it is this grid of straight lines that are painted on the screen, the view screen of the Enterprise. And so it has that same feeling of this infinite wall in space that yeah. is completely unavoidable. And does it reach a satisfying ending? Is this used as the entire plot point? Or uh, I mean, as you said, there's lots of stuff in there is this just another point or is this what it's kind of a ultimately... heart in the wind by the end, I have to say, Rob, is in the final moments, Chekhov is counting down the seconds before the Tholians will complete their web. And with seconds to spare, Spock orders that the ship turn on its engines to try to maintain its position. And that use of power interacts with the Swiss cheese space that the Defiant lost itself in. And the Enterprise blinks out of existence and reappears many light years away. And they very rapidly go, oh, we escaped. And Spock goes, no, no, it was just our use of power that threw us clear in an instant. And that's it. The Tholians don't come running there is no kind of like grappling with the diplomatic incident that happened. That's it. That's all we ever see of the Tholians. They were just about to complete their web and the Enterprise blinked out of existence and reappeared light years away. Star Trek, we did not deserve Leonard <laughs> Nimoy. The heavy lifting that man had to do, the Atlas of Star Trek, that is Leonard Nimoy. What he had to hold on his meager shoulders Indeed. himself in the Indeed. way of exposition and plot points it's played completely straight with gravitas and unless you're looking at these things critically you buy it in every case <laughs> but this episode suffers this episode and this plot device of the web suffers from that thing that i've talked about recently on the show where every once in a while star trek makes the mistake of telling a story that happens to our characters rather yes. than one that our characters are active participants in of course, yeah. Yeah, so the outcome feels almost accidental. <laughs> and then they quickly move on from any consequences or they repercussions. They quickly move on it. from it. Yeah. yeah. Do you have another uh, barrier you would like to talk about? I will. Uh, let's go to the first episode of uh, The Next Generation. Let's look at an encounter at Farpoint um, with the barrier that is put up there, which is you know, the start of a whole new era of Star Trek. And what do they do? Go back to a barrier. While in space. While in space. This is uh, Q's grid. It is Q's grid. And even though the effects are right up to date in late 80s computer technology, um, it is just like a barrier from the 1960s. Yeah. Very two-dimensional. Yeah. I, I appreciated that this grid has sound. Like, I don't know if you've noticed, but not only does it does it undulate and sparkle. I'm going to continue the run of Foley here on this episode and attempt to reproduce the sound of Q's grid. Good. It kind of hums and crackles. It goes... I could just listen to you do sound effects all podcasts, Kevin Yang. 
but yeah, I, I was going to say wave, but you said undulate. That's so much, so much better. But yeah, yeah and that 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 sound that makes it almost makes it feel like a living, breathing organism within uh, you know outer space. It's yeah, yeah. It's, it's 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 quite good. Apparently, the script kind of leans into the improbability of this, and they describe it as a wall that seems to continue without end throughout space. Like the fact that it is impossibly large, that it cuts this two-dimensional plane through all of existence is part of this impossibility that is Q. Uh, and I kind of appreciate that, that if anyone is going to make a wall that you can't fly around, it's got to be Q. That it's endless. Yeah. So yeah. it's not this, it's not a curvature type barrier. No. It literally is an indefinite barrier that does not end up, down, left right. or right. It is yeah. in this fixed place and just is like a fence yeah. that doesn't stop going up or doesn't stop going down or left or right. Yeah. It does move though. In this episode, like full credit to Picard, he says, let's go that away. They turn around and run in the other direction. And that, yes. that wall becomes a fiery sphere that chases them. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Which seems to just be a big excuse for people to shout orders on the bridge about how fast the ship can go. There was a lot of in this very first episode of Next Gen just to prove to us how impressive the Enterprise D was. Look at it. Look at the ship. Look at how it works. Look at how fast it goes. It can shoot photon torpedoes backwards. Like, yeah, that, that kind of stuff was what they were doing here. We're in the future of the future. Only because it's Q does this work for me. And once yeah. again, they are surprisingly consistent with this. When Q comes back later in season one in Hide and Q, the Enterprise is once again stopped by the exact same grid and Data goes, hey, that's the Q grid. <laughs> and the grid appears in other like smaller scales as well. In Encounter Farpoint, when Q appears on the bridge, Picard calls for security and the security officers appear in the turbo lift and Q blocks them with a grid in the doorway of the turbo lift and it looks exactly yeah. the same. And in Hide and Q when Riker is given the powers of the Q as a temptation, he summons a grid to stop the baddies from hurting his friends. So like this Q grid is like I appreciate the consistency. It is never seen again until all good things, which of course revisits encounter at Farpoint and therefore the grid is seen once again. But yeah, I, I, I kind of like it. I also like that they have twisted themselves into knots to give these things slightly different names, that there's the galactic barrier, there's the great barrier, and there's the grid. And we all know those are three distinct things that come from three distinct places. <laughs> yes, and it's definitely not connected in any way, shape, or form. They've got three different names slightly. That's right, exactly. We've kept, back, we've kept barrier trice, but one's a grid. That's no way, A grid is nothing like a barrier. No, nothing like it. <laughs> but yeah, again, this is a point used to show the power of Q, and it's used for some point to how do we solve this problem. But um, again, because it, yeah, there's a lot of talk, and I think we've talked about it as well, the ex how it was extended. It was meant to be a regular episode, but Q was added in. So that was not just the, the A plot. This is the, became the new A plot of how we work against this, uh, this yeah. entity known as Very Q. Very much a framing device. Framed yeah. almost within a rectangular surface. <laughs> almost two-dimensional, as I would say. <laughs> Well, I have one more, and that is... Let's hear it. Uh, Star Trek V. 
<laughs> Actually, You're doing it. I'm going back to the Galactic Barrier as Star Trek Discovery did in season four. And I talked right. about all the appearances of the Galactic Barrier in the original series. And one of the few things that I loved in Discovery season four is that they brought back the Galactic Barrier and they did it in style. They said, cool, let us not only acknowledge that bizarre thing from the original pilot of the original series, but let us imagine if we leaned into it with the full force of our visual effects budget and built an entire episode around it, so much so that it is entitled The Galactic Barrier. This is Discovery Season 4, Episode 10. What would we get? Oh. And it is glorious. The barrier looks scarier than it has ever looked. It still looks suspiciously ribbon-like with <laughs> space above it and space below it. Mm -hmm. But they also take the time to talk about the fact that it's a negative energy field. And in order to provide the discovery a way through it to go and meet species 10C, which lives outside of the galactic rim, they come up with this idea that it's structured with these cool bubbles. I don't use the word cool lightly. That is what they call them in the script. In Discovery, they go, isn't this cool? And Saru says something like, space phenomena are always cool. And I'm like, oh, God, you're ruining it. You're ruining it right now. But <laughs> moving past... Moving past the cool, the galactic barrier is full of bubbles that appear and disappear and Discovery decides they're going to ride one of those stable bubbles through to the other side. They only make it about halfway until they have to like run for it. And it's fun. It is the title of the episode, but it's almost the B-plot, this whole thing with the galactic barrier. Meanwhile, Book has got a thing going on with the scientist that wants to destroy the universe to go to a different universe. Because he's lost his planet, right? That's right, yeah. That is the main part of this episode and the weaker part. But this whole thing, this visit to the galactic barrier, I am here for it. And I, I really enjoyed seeing that fleshing out of a strange idea from Star Trek's past. I mean, I've only made it through three episodes of season four. I was meant to... Sorry to spoil it for you. Oh, though. look, you know, I, I think they've already spoiled themselves in my mind. <laughs> well, you have something um, to look forward to, maybe. Yeah, I was... Um, yeah, if, if if you're speaking of it so highly, then um, I, it, it, how could it be bad? I don't want to talk it up too much, Rob. It is still very <laughs> much cool. In a Saru way. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's good to be, bring it back. And in many ways, they've got that liberty now that they're in the future. Yeah. You um, would think the, they had figured out in all of their technology progress a way to get through that barrier. Because as we established way back in the original series, season three, you just have to go fast. Just go through it fast. That's all just it takes. Fast. Just go fast. Look, in the future, they've been focusing so much more on tailoring. <laughs> I mean, have you noticed those Federation uh, new outfits? They are. Mm. They, they, they are, they've, I think they've got a new cost, a new uniform every, every episode. Every week, I mean. every week, yeah. <laughs> they, they hired too many costume people is all I can think. They had a whole department and every week they were like, what do we do? And they said, we got nothing. And they're like, I guess we're redesigning the uniforms again. Oh, how I miss the days of the 60s where you could see the zipper on their jumper in the back and their sewn on <laughs> badge that is clearly fabric. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, again, it 
What I think the one thing we've picked up here is it is never a strong enough idea of a space barrier to be the sole plot or even yeah. an A plot. That's it right. is always just just a device to get to a place or to get a character changed in some way. Yeah, I yeah, I like that take. I agree. It takes a cue for a barrier to be even believable, and even then, it can't carry an episode. No, if anything, Encounter at Farpoint actually deals with how can we solve this problem, and yeah. then it goes on to okay, putting Picard on trial to justify humanity. Well, uh, I'm going to miss this, and it seems like we will be coming back for Discovery Season 5, Rob, so um, brace yourself. And Prodigy Season 2 as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're going to get Discovery first, but, uh, but Prodigy right after. Yep, my Christmas treat will be catching up and finishing off Season 4 of Discovery so I know what the hell's going on. All right. You take care. I'll talk to you soon. I will. Until then, see you around the galaxy. want to talk about star trek five <laughs> it's the most disappointing barrier right it's look there is so much disappointment at the end of that movie it doesn't even look like a barrier it's like some weird pink clouds it's well because if they ran out of money they ran out of budget so they yeah. just threw something together with as cheaply as possible they brought back the jumpers though i can't i can't see the zippers but they are all wearing jumpers out in the friggin desert are you kidding me that's what the right. hell is wrong with you people? <laughs> yes. So the God entity or whatever the hell it is has this barrier, which is, yeah, it, it, there's no, it, let's just focus on uh Chekhov turning to a Klingon woman and saying she has wonderful muscles. <laughs> I had forgotten that. Oh gosh. So yes, yeah, so let's focus on the positives of Star Trek five. Like I've said many times, that scene where Kirk turns to Cybok and says, you know, I want my pain. I need my pain. Still one of the yeah. greatest moments it's good. In, a, in, a, in a Star Trek movie ever. Yeah. It makes the other 90 minutes of that movie worthwhile. <laughs> and then we finish it all off with row, 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 your boat. I almost suggested that for our 50th episode, we watch Star Trek V together and record a commentary. Kevin Yank, you and I watching Star Trek V together and doing a commentary sounds like the best way to finish off 2023 well let's uh let's pencil that in as a christmas holiday treat for us both and uh we'll see like it seems made made for it 550 it, it lines up right it's a christmas miracle it really is <laughs>